High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the final installment of our ongoing series, Sammy and Dino. Hey, let's you and I do a song together now. Oh, 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 oh. And it ain't all Candyman and Bojangles. A singer, a dancer, an actor, a comedian, an impressionist, and an author. Mr. Entertainment. Here is Mr. Wonderful. Sammy Davis Jr. My most important meal is breakfast. If I'm not home by then, my wife really gets angry. Dean Martin is just a little bit lazy. Prefers golf to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin. In our last episode, we mentioned that Dean had claimed that once his weekly TV show had run its course, his plan was to retire to the bar. But by the time that actually happened, in the mid-1970s, his perspective had shifted. At some point along the way, he became convinced that the second he retired, he would die. We'll hear him talking about this later in the episode. But suffice it to say, as work naturally began to taper off as he got older, Dean had multiple opportunities to hang up the towel. And each time, he chose to keep working. Right after the Matt Helm series ended, 
He was the second billed star in the second highest grossing film of 1970, Airport. There weren't any great movie parts left in his future, but he kept showing up about once a year to make a movie until the offers disappeared. In 1974, The Dean Martin Show was supposed to end. When ratings plummeted in its eighth season, NBC moved Dean's show from Thursday nights to Fridays and rebranded it as a variety hour. It would now include a weekly segment roasting a famous person in the style of the clubby, politely profane Friars Club roasts. The first roastee was Ronald Reagan, who was then the governor of California and in six years would be elected president. These roasts were so popular that when Dean's contract ran out in mid-1974, the network signed him to a new contract to do TV specials, most of them roasts. The Dean Martin celebrity roasts featured a long dais full of the usual suspects. Comedians like Jonathan Winters, Phyllis Diller, and Don Rickles, assorted singers and athletes, has-beens and would-be up-and-comers, and often an enormous Orson Welles. Most of the material was scripted by a staff of writers, with Dean serving as the MC. Dean's job on the roast shows was to keep the assembly line of roasters moving. The roast era represents a marked shift in Dean's persona and career. His drunk act seems less nimble than ever. And if he was now actually over-drinking at work to smooth over the boredom of watching a parade of people with varying talent levels read canned jokes to canned laughter and applause, who could blame him? These roasts borrowed some of the ethos of what Dean used to do on stage at the Sands with the ensemble of the Rat Pack, but they were almost entirely devoid of spontaneity. And usually there was no singing. Tanned to the color of Frappuccino and all but visibly sweating out blended whiskey, Dean often looked, for the first time in his career, less than comfortable. He definitely didn't look cool. Because this was the last image of him to be disseminated through mainstream pop culture, both on broadcast TV and through the home video boom of the 80s and 90s, for many people who weren't alive for Martin and Lewis or the Rat Pack, it was this image of Dean Martin that stuck. Which is too bad, because those roasts are pretty painful to watch. Amongst the worst is the roast of Sammy Davis Jr. In today's episode, we'll unravel the rest of Sammy and Dino's lives and careers, which diverged more in the 1980s than they had in two decades. In the end, we'll talk about why these guys, who on the surface couldn't seem more different, functioned in some ways like halves to one another's whole. Join us, won't you, for the last episode of Sammy and Dino. By 1974, it wasn't okay to have one black man on a stage serving as a punching bag for the comic efforts of a bunch of white guys. So the Dean Martin celebrity roast of Sammy Davis Jr. featured appearances by Nipsey Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, and Dionne Warwick. 
At least it was a bit of a departure from what was pretty much otherwise a sea of interchangeable white male comedians in their 50s and 60s. But it didn't stop Dean from trotting out the old racial jokes from the Summit at the Sands days. Here are a couple of clips from Dean's opening monologue. It has huge, these are the jokes, folks, energy. We're honoring Simon Davis Jr. And in recognition of one of the great black men of our time, even the NBC peacock is wearing an afro. (laughs) Yes, this is the biggest night in Vegas since Gladys Knight went to the crap table and lost two of her pips. (laughs) The Sammy Davis story started in Harlem. His family was so poor when Sammy was born, they couldn't even afford a crib. Until the age of three, he slept in a hollowed-out watermelon. (laughs) The first booking he got was in Atlanta. As Sammy stepped off the plane, he was met by the governor and a rope. (laughs) Even the Ku Klux Klan took notice of Sammy. They voted him most likely to be next. Of course, Sammy sits through all this, performatively laughing hysterically. The show concluded with Alto Vis, reading hacky jokes off a teleprompter. You can all kid Sammy, but I'll have you know that he's personally created jobs for a lot of people nobody else would hire, his tailors. (laughs) And then she introduced Sammy, who spoke briefly and surprisingly seriously and somberly. I would, uh, first of all, like to thank a man that I love very, very much for giving me this honor. Mr. Dean Martin. One of the great joys of being 45 years in this business is to have people who love you make fun of you. That is one of the great joys, because the day they don't make fun of you, that means they don't give a damn about you. I thank you. That's it. Thank you very much. Dean continued to host roast specials for the rest of the 70s. They filmed them at the MGM Grand in Vegas, where he was now under contract to perform. That was an undemanding gig. He rarely made it through a full song without getting bored and moving on to the next. And that was fine with Dean. In the summer of 1976, Dean and his third wife, Kathy Hahn, moved to a new house in Malibu. A couple of weeks later, Dean was taken to the hospital for a bullet wound in his hand, which required 20 stitches. Dean claimed he had hurt himself cleaning a gun while at his friend and agent Mort Viner's house on PCH. Dean had long worn a pearl-handled Derringer in his ankle boot, and he knew how to handle it, even knew how to use it safely for comic purposes. Once, when the Jaguar he had been driving died on him, 
he took out that gun and put a bullet in the car, like he'd shoot a crippled horse. So Dean's daughter, Dina, didn't buy the story that he had accidentally shot himself while cleaning the gun. Dina knew that Dean knew enough about guns to know to never clean a gun that was loaded. In her book, Dina implies that the flesh wound in Dean's hand may have had something to do with the deterioration of his marriage to Kathy, because six days after the gun went off, Dean filed for divorce. He withdrew that petition and then refiled it about a month later. By the end of 1976, Dean's third and final marriage was over. After that, he lived alone for the rest of his life. Most nights when he wasn't working in Vegas, he'd go out to dinner alone. On Sunday nights, he'd hit the hamburger hamlet on the Sunset Strip. But almost every other night, he'd head to a red leather booth Italian joint called Da Vinci's. The staff would see him come in and know to bring him what Dean called the setup, meaning a glass of J&B blended scotch, neat, with ice, water, and a spoon on the side. Dinner would be an appetizer portion of linguine pomodoro, a simple white fish, and tiramisu, which Dean called rum cake. He'd drink a little red wine with dinner and cappuccino with dessert. Then he'd go home, alone, and fall asleep in front of the TV. This seemed to be the way he wanted to live, but this self-selected social isolation baffled Frank Sinatra, who kept trying to recapture something of a lost past by making Dean do things in public that he clearly didn't want to do. In 1976, Sinatra helped to arrange a surprise appearance by Dean on Jerry Lewis's annual telethon to raise money for muscular dystrophy. Dean and Jerry had not even seen one another since 1960. In the interim, Jerry had established himself as the virtuosic writer, director, and star of movies like The Nutty Professor. But the 70s had been tough for him. He hadn't released a movie since Which Way to the Front in 1970. He spent the next couple of years working on The Day the Clown Cried, his notorious concentration camp movie which would never be released due to a dispute between Lewis and one of the film's original screenwriters. He spent much of the next few years in a haze of Percodan addiction, an addiction he was still in the midst of that night in 1976 when, in the middle of the live telethon, Sinatra introduced a special guest. Listen, <laughs> I, have a, <laughs> I have a friend who loves what you do every year and who just wanted to come out and say, would you send my friend out, please? Okay, where, okay, where is he? We you send him out here? Come here. Dean emerges from the wings and slowly approaches Jerry. He walked out like a fucking champ, like a gladiator was how Jerry remembered it. Jerry reached out his arms to embrace Dean, and a grinning Dean, lit cigarette in his right hand, embraced Jerry back. But then it got awkward. They couldn't have a real conversation there, on stage, in front of millions, in front of Sinatra. 
So what were they supposed to do? And Jerry was high on pills. And Dean looked like he had had a few setups and he might have been taking pills too by this point. Jerry leaned into the awkwardness. As he keeps trying to get a bit going, Dean's eyes follow Sinatra, who is sort of wandering around the stage, occasionally interrupting the main event. I don't know. How you been? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it seems like uh, we, we haven't seen each <laughs> other uh, for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there was all those rumors about our breaking up, and then when I started the show and you weren't here, I believed it. I'll show you guys to your room if you like. The lights are out upstairs, so follow me. <laughs> oh, he drinks a lot, this kid. Uh, so you working? I work six weeks a year at, uh, at the Megum. The Megum? <laughs> and six days I do a roast. And... Would you excuse us a minute? <laughs> I want to see the wires are all right. <laughs> Gee, it's nice to see you. No, I'm over here. I, no, I was, I had to, I had to come in because I, I had to, you know, I had to go and this was the closest place. <laughs> you always have to go. I always drink, you know. <laughs> It continued like this for a bit. And then Frank and Dean sang, I can't give you anything but love, while Jerry watched. At one point, the camera cuts to Lewis with his fingers in his mouth, looking like he might maniacally bite a digit clean off. They finished the song and did a bit more business. And then Dean and Frank left the stage together, with Dean blowing a kiss to Jerry on his way out. That night, Jerry sent Dean a letter and made sure it was delivered to him at his hotel. Dean didn't respond. Over the next year, Jerry tried to reconnect with Dean several times, using the next upcoming telethon as an excuse. No response. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite.
Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. On the roast, Phyllis Diller joked about Sammy's lavish lifestyle and his addiction to credit. Sammy's a man that came up from the ghetto to become a star, and he has everything that goes with it. He wears custom-made clothes, expensive jewelry, drives two foreign cars. Sammy has earned his success. He just hasn't paid for it. Altavis Davis cringed at this joke because it was true. By the late 1970s, Dean Martin was rich, really rich, with a kind of stockpiled wealth that could be passed through at least a couple of generations. Sammy was never able to amass this kind of wealth. Part of the problem was his spending. He got an addict's thrill from shopping and used the acquisition of luxury products to bolster his image. It was his signature look from the late 60s on to be encrusted with jewels. But a lot of the problem had to do with ownership, which Dean had, and Sammy never did. He did not own most of his masters, even though he should have. A decade after his death, a lawsuit was filed on his behalf, accusing record company MGM Verve of failing to return to Sammy the masters on 23 years' worth of recordings. While he was alive, Sammy was usually considered an artist for hire, a freelancer, brought in to put his stamp on songs that were written and owned by other people, like Candyman. During the Rat Pack era, Sinatra had given Sammy the opportunity to own his masters for a reprise. But Sammy sold the rights back because he needed the money. He was always working new jobs to pay off past debts. He never got out of that cycle. Dean had been stuck in that same cycle for a long time, but he eventually broke it. And he did that in two ways. His tidal wave of movie stardom in the late 1950s hit Hollywood at the exact right time, when powerful agents were negotiating back-end deals for their clients through the creation of production companies. Dean didn't care about producing, but he was happy to take the financial cut that could be laundered through a production company. In other words, he was happy to wet his beak like all the gangsters had wet theirs on him. Then, Dean took the proceeds from his back-end deals and bought land. Through his production company, Dino bought over a 1,000 acres in Ventura County and Santa Barbara, including Jimmy Stewart's former Solvang Ranch 
and the Hidden Valley Ranch, and hundreds of acres in Moorpark and Riverside. He owned two houses in Beverly Hills, several apartment buildings, a trailer park, and other lots and land scattered around the Southland. Dean always understood that the house always wins. So he bought the house and became a landlord. They say living well is the best revenge, and certainly the wealth Dean Martin had amassed by midlife was a fair enough fuck you to an establishment which he always suspected would remain closed to Italians and never respect him. He wasn't wrong. In 1975, it emerged that Dean was on a master list kept by the IRS of persons and organizations that merited extra attention. Also on that list were a number of enemies to a Republican state, including the ACLU and the Black Panthers. Frank Sinatra was on that IRS list, but Sammy Davis Jr. was not, because his wealth wasn't conspicuous enough. There wasn't enough of it. He never got far enough ahead of his creditors to put his money anywhere that it would make more money. For a long time, Sammy closed his shows with the ode to self-empowerment, I've Got to Be Me. In the 70s, he made a change. He started closing his show with Mr. Bojangles. Written and recorded by country artist Jerry Jeff Walker in 1968, Mr. Bojangles tells the story of a washed-up vaudevillian tap dancer, a drunk who reminisces about the good old days from a jail cell. When Sammy first heard this song, he was repulsed by it. He thought it was an insult to the tap dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson, who hadn't had such a sad fate. And deep down, Sammy worried that if he were to sing it, it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy. He sung it on stage once, and then told his business partner, Cy Marsh, that he would never sing it again. But sometime after Candyman, Sammy changed his mind. He began singing Mr. Bojangles as a way of proving that he wasn't Mr. Bojangles, that his life wasn't going to end, as he put it, in the toilet. Mr. Bojangles The man could dance He told me other times He worked with minstrel shows Traveling throughout the South But singing Mr. Bojangles to prove he wasn't going to end up like Mr. Bojangles was a bit of misdirection. For one thing, though audiences clamored for him to sing this song and considered it his signature, it wasn't his song. He didn't own it. He didn't own any of the songs that would have made him the most profit. The few masters of his recordings which he did own, which were discovered in a storage unit after his death, were not of his biggest hits. Barry Gordy had given Sammy the master of his album for Motown, specifically because Barry thought it was worthless. By the mid-70s, Sammy was still making money from live shows, but he was pretty much only making money from live shows. 
all other sources of income and invitations to work had pretty much dried up. And yet, Sammy was still spending like crazy. It had been clear for a while that Sammy's habit of buying on credit was a problem. Back in the late 60s, in the middle of a Golden Boy performance in London, a process server had actually taken the stage in the middle of the second act to hand Sammy a summons related to his debts to local stores. As Sammy later assessed his situation, quote, I had more clothes than I had closets, more cars than garage space, more jewelry, more everything if it could be bought on credit, but no money. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on MUBI starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try MUBI free for 30 days at MUBI.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. Part of the reason why Sammy spent so much was to prove that he could. He wanted everyone to think he was doing great. Candyman had been a comeback hit for Sammy, but he came out of it depressed. Its success had done nothing to win over Sammy's critics, who thought he'd do anything for popularity. 
The Nixon stuff came back to bite Sammy yet again after Watergate and Nixon's resignation, when Sammy lost his inside connection to the establishment that had caused so much trouble. He was nearly 50 years old, and he felt old, and was shaving multiple times a day so that no one would see that his stubble was coming in gray. He started searching for something, anything, to make himself feel good. In 1974, Sammy began working with an accountant named Richard Wayman. Some of Sammy's later-in-life financial problems would stem from bad deals he got into thanks to Wayman and one of Wayman's associates, a lawyer named John Climico, who was tapped into the Cleveland mob. At Wayman's recommendation, Sammy invested in a television studio and a videotape production facility called Command Video. Wayman had a thing for photos and footage of grisly car accidents, which proved to be his entree into the world of underground video. A lot of what was distributed on video in the mid-70s was porn, and Command Video did a brisk business duplicating porn videos for distribution. Sammy's involvement in the porn world became apparent to his friends in the entertainment mainstream in the early 70s, at a party Alto threw for his birthday. It was a costume party. Tina Sinatra, Frank's daughter, and her date both showed up in blackface. Her date, incidentally, was Wes Craven. After dinner, Sammy ushered everyone into his private screening room for a movie. The movie Sammy chose to screen for his friends at his birthday party was one of his favorites, Deep Throat. The film's star, Linda Lovelace, was in attendance. Lovelace wrote extensively about her affair with Sammy in her book, Ordeal. She recalled that Sammy told her that conventional intercourse was out because Sammy would consider that to constitute cheating on Alto but everything else was fair game, especially the specialty Loveless showed off in Deep Throat. Sometimes she would be encouraged to hook up with Alto while Sammy and Linda's abusive husband slash pimp Chuck Trainer watched. Trainer called Sammy, quote, a real hellraiser, quote, we partied, we orgied, we drank, smoked, and fucked from one end of the country to the other. One night, Linda claimed, Sammy asked her to teach him how to deep throat. And as a prank on trainer, she tricked her rabidly homophobic husband into accepting oral sex from Sammy Davis Jr. Loveless wrote that Sammy told her he loved her. But in the end, he didn't help her escape her abusive husband or help her find legit work in Hollywood. After Linda did find a way to leave Chuck, she called Sammy and he told her, quote, you have to do whatever you have to do. Linda never saw him again. A few months later, Sammy was Chuck Trainer's best man at his next marriage to porn star Marilyn Chambers. Sammy loved the idea of sleeping with porn stars, almost as much as he loved the idea of people knowing he was sleeping with porn stars. He'd throw parties where he'd fill his house with strippers, then pull out alligator briefcases full of cash 
from which he'd take handfuls of $100 bills to throw at the dancers. He thought it was good for his image to be seen as a sex maniac. In the 70s, as a 180 from the Nixon stuff? Maybe it was? There was a period where he'd try anything to seem young and hip. Anything included lots of cocaine. For a short time, it included inviting Satanists to party at his mansion in Bel Air. During this period, between 1975 and 1980, Sammy acted in zero movies. He had a late-night talk show for a while called Sammy and Company, but it wasn't successful. In 1977, the year his talk show ended, American television was fundamentally changed by the miniseries Roots, which provided dozens of Black actors with the highest-profile roles of their career to that point. Sammy started going around joking that he was the only Black guy in Hollywood not in Roots. But privately, he was hurt that they hadn't even considered him for a role. His dry spell as an actor broke in 1981 when he appeared with Dean in one of the highest-grossing movies of the year, the phenomenally of-its-time Cannonball Run. But it didn't exactly lead to any great parts. No one, Sammy included, was happy to be included in Cannonball Run 2. That movie was released the same year that Billy Crystal appeared on Saturday Night Live, performing an unflattering impression of Sammy. And yes, he did it in blackface. I can't believe how easy it is to find footage of this. As of this writing, it's on YouTube, on the official SNL account, with no disclaimers. In this sketch, Joe Piscopo, playing Ronald Reagan, asks Sammy to sabotage his Democrat opponents by doing what he did for Nixon. Sammy, that's encouraging, because I was going to ask you about uh, that hugging thing you do, like uh, uh, when you embraced uh, President Nixon. Oh, man. Sir Ron, I couldn't possibly. That was a huge disaster, both for me and for the good president at the time. And I took a solemn oath to the cat upstairs, man, that I would never, ever hug anybody politically again. Hmm. Would you do a hug for me? Any place, any time. Right now. No, right, no, you want right no, now? no, I didn't mean Come to Come on, let me give you no, a little, no, just no, a bissel, babe. No, Sammy, Come on, here, take, let Sammy, me, here. You're going to like I didn't a little bissel no, of not, a hug, not babe. Here, look, no, no, look at Sammy, this. Sammy, look at this. You, no, Sammy, you love this. No, I didn't mean for you to hug me. Well, then who? Hart and Mondale, hug them. But wait a second, sir. I'm a Republican, and they're both Democrats, and if I hug them with a disastrous defect... Oh. Oh, too much, man. This is just life. This is a great idea that you have that I don't know. It's unbelievable. What great strategy to turn the tables on those cats. You are too much, man. Sammy and Billy knew each other. Billy had been his opening act for a month in Tahoe. Crystal later said that Davis was annoyed that Crystal hadn't warned him that he was going to be making fun of him on national TV. As far as I could find, this is the only note of regret that Crystal has issued about this impression. He blacked up to do it on national TV as recently as 2012, when he last hosted the Oscars. In hindsight, Crystal's impression seems all the more insensitive 
when you consider that Sammy's career was really not in a great place at this time. In addition to his flagging movie career in the late 70s and early 80s, during that period he released seven albums, none of which produced a hit, and none of which even have their own Wikipedia page, for whatever that's worth. Certainly, it got to the point where Sammy wasn't sure what he was worth, monetarily or in terms of cultural cachet. So, in 1980, Sammy threw the biggest party of his life. It started because Alta was worried that everyone knew that their image as high rollers was wearing thin. They were spending Sammy's Vegas paydays on everything from Rolls-Royce payments to Gucci couches before the cash was in hand. It started out as a small sit-down dinner for their 25 closest couple friends. But it swelled. Alto decided they needed to reupholster their bar furniture if so many people were going to see it. Then enough people RSVP'd that their cook couldn't handle it, so they needed to pay for catering. Then more people wanted to come, so they decided to move the party outside, so they needed a tent. And a band. And another band. At that point, Sammy understood that the only sensible thing to do was cancel. Instead, he let it swell more. In the end, 400 people showed up from a cross-section of worlds and generations. The guests included Loretta Young, Gregory Peck and Fred McMurray, O.J. Simpson and Wilt Chamberlain, and Liza Minnelli. The final price tag for the party was $75,000 roughly a quarter of a million in 2021 dollars. Sammy simply didn't have that kind of money. Rather than solving his image problem, the party created new problems. Now the IRS threatened to take his house. He called Alto from Vegas, told her not to go out. He said, I don't think they'll make a move to take a house if a lady's living in it. Over the previous 20 years, Sammy estimated, he had earned $50 million. It was all gone. For the first time in his life, he decided to take matters into his own hands to start keeping track of where every dollar was going, to sign every check himself. Or at least that's how he spun it in his second autobiography, Why Me? In fact, in the early 80s, there were a number of changes in terms of Sammy's finances. For one thing, Vegas was not the cash cow it had once been, and that was the result of a number of dominoes falling. Howard Hughes had bought up a bunch of legacy casinos in a public effort to clean up Vegas and switch control of the money-minting factory from Italians, against whom Hughes was racist, to clean-cut Mormons, who Hughes respected and could control. Hughes abandoned Vegas in 1970, and few thought he had left the place better than he had found it. It kind of looks like racketeers ran a better business than Mr. Hughes does, said the county commissioner in 1970. Still, Hughes had effectively weakened the mob stranglehold enough that in 1974, probably not coincidentally the year the partially Vegas-set Godfather II was released, the federal government finally began wiretapping casinos in an effort to nail the gangsters still taking a skim. In 1981, 
A number of mafiosos with hands in Vegas were indicted by a grand jury. This effectively killed the old Vegas, the Vegas that had been such a cash cow for Sammy, Dean, and Frank. Sensing that a Vegas without the mob meant an end to big paydays for Sammy, his business manager, Cy Marsh, quit. Shirley Rhodes, wife of George Rhodes, Sammy's longtime music arranger, stepped in. Sammy continued to play Vegas, but it became harder and harder for him to sell tickets. Without Cy Marsh around, he lacked constructive influences. Sammy certainly didn't need Alto's help to spend beyond his means, and he probably could have figured out how to get deeply into pornography if it hadn't been for Richard Wayman, and he probably could have become addicted to cocaine if other handlers and associates, including mob-connected Climaco, hadn't encouraged Sammy to stay high so that he wouldn't think too hard about what was going on with his money. But certainly, the people around Sammy in the 70s didn't do anything to stop him from going down some dark roads. One person who did try to intervene, at least in terms of drugs, was Frank Sinatra. In the early 80s, Sammy ran into Sinatra's right-hand man, Jilly Rizzo, in Vegas. Rizzo asked Sammy if he had thought about why he hadn't heard from Frank in a while. The answer was that Frank had heard that Sammy was doing a lot of cocaine, and he didn't want to have anything to do with him as long as that was true. It was true, but Sammy still didn't want anyone to tell him what to do. Three years passed without the old friends having a meaningful conversation. Finally, their wives got them together for a summit. You're the fucking greatest talent that ever lived, Frank told Sammy. You gonna let that shit destroy you? Sammy promised that he'd give up the coke. And he did. Quitting cocaine was easy compared to quitting drinking. At first, he thought he was getting fat. His stomach was so swollen that his slim-fitting shirts were splitting at the seams. So he stopped eating. But he didn't stop drinking vodka and Coca-Cola all day and all night long. By the time he went to the hospital for what he thought was a broken rib, his stomach had become so distended, he looked like he was pregnant. Sammy's liver had blown up, and his stomach needed to be lanced. His doctor told him his liver could be managed, but not cured. He had to give up booze. Forever. This was in November 1983. Six years later, he talked about it on the Arsenio Hall show. Drugs was just something because it seemed to be everybody was doing it and I wanted to be within with everybody. Mm -hmm. But man, to really get a nice buzz, you know, give me a little bourbon, give me a little vodka. I miss booze. See, I don't miss the other stuff, mm -hmm. but I miss not drinking. And why did you stop drinking? Because my, the doctor said, you're going to die. <laughs> you will die if you keep on drinking. And my stomach swole out to here, you know, and ain't nothing worse than a guy that weighs 112 pounds with a big stomach out here. You know? <laughs> People going, oh, you look healthy. <laughs> and it was all the liver just backed up on me. Yeah. So uh, I was a very lucky man because I almost died. When Sammy stopped drinking, his lifestyle didn't change all that much. He'd still stay up all night in Vegas, 
His dressing room would be full of chilled champagne and literal bowls full of cigarettes. But Sammy would be drinking strawberry soda while everyone else was getting drunk. On the road, it was harder to keep occupied. He needed a hobby, and he chose cooking. He had a custom kitchen built in a mobile home, which followed him to every tour stop. After a show, he'd go in there and whip up his famous chili. Sometimes friends would come and sit with him while he cooked, and then they'd all eat, except for Sammy, who hadn't had much of an appetite since the liver problems started. And yet, sometimes he'd just cook by himself, because cooking helped. He talked about this, too, on the Arsenio Hall show. I started cooking with one fry pan. Yeah. And did that for about a year and a half. Just would come upstairs and mince and dice, you know, and mm-hmm. then... Well, I can only tell you that now I carry five foot lockers. Yeah. Worth of, you know, electric stoves and this, that, and the other. And when I get to Vegas, where I'm going, mm-hmm. to, tonight, God on our side, we make it to Vegas. Mm-hmm. I'll be right in the kitchen. By 11.30 tonight, be in the kitchen cooking. How much? Mincing huh. and dicing. What are you doing, Sammy? I'm mincing and dicing. <laughs> Sammy's wife, Altovis, did not stop drinking. If anything, she was drinking more than ever, in part because Sammy had all but cut her out of his life. They shared their 22-room mansion with a woman named Sue Turner, who was Sammy's latest young, white girlfriend. Altavis had no say in what was happening in her marriage, but she certainly made her frustrations known. One fight apparently climaxed with Alto dragging Sue Turner down a flight of stairs by the hair. Another apparent attempt to hurt Sammy involved one of his adult adopted sons, Mark, who recalled, quote, One time she just pushed me into a closet in front of the old man and started kissing me. I was kind of freaked out. In 1986, Sammy's daughter Tracy was 25, and on the verge of getting married, she decided to confront her father over their lack of a relationship. It was an awkward thing to do. As Tracy wrote, quote, You don't just call up the great Sammy Davis Jr. and say, By the way, you're a lousy father. Instead, at the end of a long night in Vegas, she blurted out to him, I love you, Pop, but I've never really liked you. Sammy was not shocked to hear that. He said, Yeah, well, I have news for you, Trace. I've never really liked you much either. Tracy and Sammy got to know each other after that, but the book she wrote about being Sammy's daughter would still betray much resentment and pain. Sammy's struggles with Tracy were nothing compared to what Dean went through with one of his kids in 1987. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Dean's oldest son with Gene had gone by the name Dino Jr. for the first 15 years or so of his life. By that point, he had already been part of a boy band with Desi Arnaz Jr., which had two hit singles in 1965. By that point, Dino was already collecting guns, mainly assault weapons. In early 1974, Dino Jr. was arrested for attempting to sell two illegally acquired combat rifles, including an AK-47, to two men who turned out to be ATF agents. He was slapped on the wrist. At the end of his pop career, Dean's son decided he didn't want to be Dino Jr. anymore, and he started asking to be called Dean Paul. As Dean Paul, he became a minor tennis star, competing at Wimbledon, and starring in a cursed Robert Evans film called Players, which was a tennis romance co-starring Evans' ex-wife, Ellie McGraw. When that film was released in 1979, Dean Paul was recently divorced from actress Olivia Hussey, and he'd soon marry figure skater Dorothy Hamill. That marriage lasted until 1984, and a year after that, Dean Paul landed a lead role on a new primetime TV show called Misfits of Science, which co-starred Courtney Cox, then known as the girl in the music video for Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark. It lasted one season. Dean Paul loved to fly airplanes, and in his 30s, he joined the California Air National Guard. On March 21, 1987, 35-year-old Dean Paul went up in a jet for a practice bombing run. He may have wanted to show off a bit for his 14-year-old son, Alex, who was on the ground watching. But nine minutes after takeoff, Dean Paul's plane disappeared from the radar. For four days, he was missing without a trace. His brother, Ricky, got so desperate he paid a psychic $5,000 to tell him what happened to Dean Paul. The psychic said he was dead. As the psychic was pointing out on a map the location where they believed Dean Paul's plane had crashed, news came over the radio that the downed jet had been found in that exact spot. Dean Martin was 70 years old when his son died and he was never the same after that. The night after the funeral, he went into his den and talked to Jerry Lewis on the phone for two hours. The call ended with both men saying, I love you. Dean had been retreating from the public eye slowly throughout the 80s, but his son's death cast a new pall. Early the following year, he joined Frank and Sammy in Palm Springs for a weekend. Frank and Sammy told Dino he needed to get out of the house more. They suggested that the three of them go on a Rat Pack reunion tour. Dean said, why don't we find a good bar instead? He didn't want a tour. He liked Vegas, where he could spend the whole day alone, put on a tux and perform for one hour, alone, and then go back to his room and go to sleep. Alone. All he wanted to do was be alone. Frank and Sammy both were still terrified of being alone. They told Dean that he needed that tour, but really, 
they needed it. And they thought they needed him to balance out the alchemy of the threesome. So Dean showed up, although even at the press conference to announce the tour, it was clear that times had changed. When one journalist asked why they would take on such a grueling project at their age, Dean answered with an awareness of his own mortality. But it's kind of a, a grueling undertaking, no, no matter what. It, and you, you guys certainly don't need the money, I would assume. <laughs> what is it that makes you willing to go through the, the ordeal that, that a project like this obviously entails? I'll answer that. Do you know that when you retire in two years, you die? Oh. Do you know that? Never retire. He's speaking for himself. Don't, 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 don't. Dean may have been concerned with staving off death, and yet he was the only one of the three that smoked throughout the press conference, something another journalist asked about, which he answered with vintage Dean Martin insouciance, leaving Frank to do damage control. I was bothered by the smoking. Do um, you mind at all that, that kind of image that projects in, a, in an age when they're trying to cut down on smoking, especially by kids? We don't care who smokes. <laughs> <laughs> if there's a sign that says uh, no smoking, I won't smoke. But if I don't see a sign, I say, who's spitting? <laughs> Actually, we, we, we don't, this, this is a kind of a loose arrangement between you and, and, and the three of us. We certainly wouldn't do it. I doubt if we would do it on stage or at any other press conferences, but... Uh, At the first show of the tour, Dean threw a lit cigarette off the stage into the crowd. Opening night was in Oakland. Dean did his old drunk shtick to open the show and joined Frank and Sammy for the grand finale. On the second night of the tour in Chicago, Frank insisted that Dean come to the bar with him after the show. At the bar, Dean couldn't get in the swing of things. What the hell am I doing here? He asked himself. The next day, he checked himself into a hospital, complaining of kidney issues. This gave him a medical excuse to get out of the tour, and he was swiftly replaced by Liza Minnelli. But whatever was wrong with Dean's kidneys, he recovered quickly. Within a month, he had accepted an offer for a new solo show from Bally's in Reno. Dean and Sammy had accepted the same share of proceeds on the tour, 25% each to Frank's 50%. Dean could afford to walk away from that money. He had no incentive to stick around and accept second-class treatment. But Sammy did. Dean didn't feel like he owed either Rat Packer anything. But Sammy did. Sammy felt he was still paying Frank back for his kindness in the 40s and 50s, for opening the door so that Sammy could squeeze through the color barrier. The Together Again tour was an albatross for Dean. For Sammy, it was a lifeline. Sammy needed this tour so much that he was willing to accept the same old treatment from Frank. Not only was Sinatra, at the arrangement of Sinatra and his personal team, making twice as much on each show as Sammy, but he also commandeered the majority of revenue from merch and drink sales at the shows. His team collected the money from the tills at night, 
and took their skim off the top. He had learned from the best gangsters in the world. The tour had been Sammy's first lucrative gig in a long time. He needed the money. He had a lot of debt. But it was cut short in August 1989 when Sammy was diagnosed with cancer. He had known he was at risk of developing throat cancer for about 20 years when he was first diagnosed with nodes in the throat. Back then, the doctor told him to quit smoking. He never did. It was after a show in Orlando when Sammy lost his voice. He flew to Los Angeles and got the throat cancer diagnosis at Cedars. He was told they might be able to save his life if they took out the tumor. But his voice box would have to come with it. Sammy said, if you take out my voice box, you might as well kill me. He opted for radiation, which killed the tumor for a little while. When it came back, they tried chemo, and that failed. In February 1990, there was a big show at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles to celebrate Sammy's 60 years in show business. Frank opened the show and Eddie Murphy hosted. Bill Cosby performed and Whitney Houston and Gregory Hines. Everyone from Goldie Hawn to Gregory Peck to Mike Tyson took the stage that night. Almost two hours into the telecast, Tony Danza brought out Dean Martin. Dean wasn't doing so hot himself. He had problems with his kidneys, his prostate, and his liver, exacerbated by the painkillers he was now taking with his scotch. But he pulled off a comic bit in which he read fake telegrams from stars who couldn't attend that night. I, uh, I could go on with this trip down memory lane, but I think you'd be more interested in these wires that came in from all over the world. <laughs> Just made that up. They've asked me to read uh, these because I have my own glasses and a lovely voice. <laughs> Here's one from uh, Hollywood. Dear Sammy, you have always been a class act, and I've patterned my career after you. Signed, Roseanne Barr. <laughs> I'd like to add one more little wire before I leave. Roses are red. Carnations of pink, if I had your talent, I wouldn't have to drink. Can I <laughs> At the end of the show, Sammy took the stage, where all of the stars who had appeared that night were waiting for him. And as the band played, he hugged and kissed them, one by one. Frank and Dean had already left, so instead... Sammy hugged Magic Johnson, Jesse Jackson, Michael Jackson, Shirley MacLaine. As the credits began to roll, Sammy waved goodbye. He went home to die. One of his first visitors back at home was Dean. Dino hugged Sammy, little Sammy, smaller than ever. They both cried. Frank came, too, but he waited until he left the house to cry. 
While he lay in his bedroom wasting away, his employees stole keepsakes, jewelry, art. His wife, Altavis, sent FedEx packages of cash to friends around the country and hid her Rolls Royce and 13 fur coats. Sammy understood what was happening, and yet, in his final moments with Altavis, he apologized to her for the way he had treated her, for the orgies, the drugs, the neglect. Sammy had been thinking about this for a while and had articulated his perspective to his biographer, Bert Boyer. Sammy told Boyer, quote, I married her and brought her into a world she'd never seen. I put her in a mansion in Beverly Hills, gave her a Rolls Royce with her name on the license plate, and I made that name famous by constantly mentioning her and featuring her on network television. Then I showed her the darker side of life, the drugs and the partying. I destroyed her. I could enjoy all that and walk away from it, but Alto could not. I did that to her. On his deathbed, before his voice completely left him, Sammy found a private moment with Alto. He acknowledged the debt and the crises to come. There's nothing left here but my name, Sammy told his third wife. He added, remember, you'll always be Mrs. Sammy Davis Jr. At Sammy's funeral, my Brit sat with Altaviz and Sammy's mom, Elvira. Frank and Dean were there, and Jerry Lewis. Jesse Jackson spoke. He said, To love Sammy is to love black and white. Before Sammy's body was removed from their home, Altavis took the jewelry off his hands and removed his glass eye. Eventually, she was removed from the house they had shared when the IRS seized it. Altavis must have understood that Sammy was in debt, and sure enough, the assets that she wasn't able to get out of the house would be taken too. She had no income, and even if she had, it would have been garnished by the IRS. Through friends of her family, she ended up in the Poconos. There she was introduced to Albert Murray, a former federal prosecutor who agreed to help sort through Sammy's estate in an attempt to get the tax man off of Alto's back. Murray would discover that Altavis had looted her husband's easy-to-move assets at the urging of Al Carter, a singer who, along with his wife Patrice, had been a key part of Sammy's entourage. Al and Sammy had swapped wives, which put Al in a unique position to both understand how much debt Sammy was in and to be able to whisper in Altavis's ear in order to try to protect some of the wealth everyone in Sammy's orbit wanted a piece of. Altavis gave Carter her Rolls Royce for safekeeping. She also gave him a quarter million dollars, most of it borrowed from Sammy's friends for the same ostensible purpose. She would spend the next decade or more fighting to reclaim some portion of her husband's fortune. Often, she was fighting against Sammy's kids, particularly Tracy, who wrote Altavis off as, quote, a drunk and not a good person. 
Whatever Altavisa's character, she could have hardly stood a chance against an IRS that was salivating over Sammy's case, which at his time of death totaled $7 million, the largest outstanding individual taxpayer debt in America. After toiling for years, Murray managed to get the IRS to accept a settlement of just $350,000. With nothing to live on, Alto went to rehab and then got a job as a cashier at a sweater factory in the Poconos. She'd introduce herself to her co-workers as Mrs. Sammy Davis Jr. A little over a year after Sammy passed, Dean performed his last shows in Vegas. Around the same time, in 1992, the Nick Tosh's biography, Dino, was published. Its last pages describe Dean in a reverie in front of the TV, free associating as old westerns float into Depends commercials, starring his former inamorata, June Allison. The last words on Dean in the book from someone who knew him came from his second wife, Jean, who by that point had reconciled with her ex-husband, if not romantically, then as a companion who made sure to take him to dinner on Friday nights so that he didn't just waste away in front of the TV. Dean declined to participate in his own biography, and Jean tells the author that it's better that way. You would not learn anything from Dean, Jean says. He's so distanced from his own past, his own life. I couldn't find any record of what Dean thought about the Tosh's book, if he thought anything, but certainly it put Dean's frail health and lonely lifestyle in the news. It was published before anyone knew exactly what would kill him. In 1993, Dean checked himself into Cedars and a scan found tumors in his lungs. He was given months to live but he ended up hanging on for a couple of years. He knew he was dying in 1994 when his daughter Dina appeared on Geraldo Rivera's daytime talk show as part of a panel of adult children of celebrities, setting the record straight on tabloid reports about their parents. And the stories about his, his terrible ailing health, his financial situation, all that stuff. Well, the reason why he's not working anymore is because he doesn't need to. He has more money than he said he could ever, than any of us could ever spend. Really? He's got plenty of money, which I was happy to hear. Wait, do we have a... Do, <laughs> I think we may have a mystery man on the tele... Hello? Yeah. Who's calling, please? Dean Martin. Dean Martin is on the telephone live. How about that? Dean, it is an honor to have you call into the program. So, uh, Dina tells us you're doing just fine. Oh, I certainly am. I, I don't have to worry about a thing except my, my lovely, beautiful children. Aw. Dad, you're so sweet. <laughs> uh, I know that, honey. <laughs> I always will love her. I always have. And... That's about it. She's the sweetest girl I know. Oh. Oh. Dean Martin, ladies and gentlemen. Dean died on Christmas Day, 1995. His funeral was star-studded. The first speaker was Shirley MacLaine, who made fun of her own persona as Hollywood's number one believer 
in the porous line between life and the afterlife. Well, the last time I spoke to Dean, she began, was about an hour ago, and he said everything is fine. Then Jerry Lewis took the stage and had the whole room sobbing by the time he was finished. Sinatra wasn't there. He was old and sick, and he died less than three years later. I collect old magazines, and in one issue of the now-defunct publication Movie Line that I have on my shelf, there's a negative review of the Toshis book, which mocks the author for wasting his time doing such in-depth research on his subject of choice. The thesis of the review is, who even gives a shit about Dean Martin? I found this shocking when I first read it a few years ago, because I cared a lot about Dean Martin. Or at least, I thought I did. I think, maybe, at the end of the day, I loved a handful of his movies so much that I wanted to ascribe more meaning to him and his work than maybe it deserved. He spent about five years making really good films. He spent the other 70-plus years of his life telling us not to look too closely, that there was nothing there for us to find. Maybe there was and maybe there wasn't. There is a line in one of Shirley MacLaine's books about how Dean was so totally opaque that it made her want to know him even more. When people say, don't look at me, there's nothing to see, we have a tendency to think they have something to hide. But maybe we should listen. Still, even if you were to write him off as a big void, personally or in terms of artistic vision, that handful of movies will outlast Dino. They have outlasted any other aspect of his output, other than a handful of pop singles that have become so overplayed as signifiers of Rat Pack cool that they're almost unlistenable on their own merits. On the flip side, you have Sammy, who had so much he wanted to communicate, so much he wanted to achieve as an artist. But the filmography he left behind doesn't do his talent justice. He didn't get the chances Dean did, the chances Dean took for granted, to become a movie star. As I've argued, I think Sammy is the secret star of Ocean's Eleven and the scene stealer of Porgy and Bess. But Sammy never got his own Some Came Running, or his own Bells Are Ringing, or his own Kiss Me Stupid. He should have in the late 50s or 60s. He didn't, because even as Hollywood movies were starting to make room for black movie stars, it would take the industry longer to look beyond black men who looked like Sidney Poitier or Harry Belafonte, to imagine someone who looked like Sammy as a leading man. And so you're left with two stars. One of them, one of the most multi-talented performers to ever be in movies, who didn't fit the mold of what a movie star looked like. Then you have a performer with a much narrower lane, who succeeds beyond anything that anyone could have predicted, probably in part because his creative ambitions were limited. Dean didn't have a lot of range. He didn't have a lot he wanted to say. But the best and worst of what he had to offer as a singer and a movie star remain available for us to judge on the merits. 
Sammy's legacy is harder to evaluate, not just because there was so much he didn't get to do, but because so much of what he did do is ephemeral. The best way to assess what he could do is through clips of TV specials and live gigs archived on YouTube. But then, nothing lasts forever. A few months after Dean Martin died, the Sands was demolished. It was replaced by the Venetian. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We are on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. Perfect for the holidays. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast and get lots of bonus content. You must remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and sometimes glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all of the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 